You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me know. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Stay out of the train! I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. So for this final week on Walt Disney, I did struggle a little bit at first as to what to do for the third week topic. And what I kept coming back to was something about Disneyland, Walt's only completed theme park during his lifetime and one of his withstanding influences on his company. So that's what we're going to do. Since the opening of Disneyland in July 1955, the park and the studio have pretty much held hands throughout their 65-year history together. Rides have inspired movies, and movies have inspired the rides. So, this week, we're going into the early history of Disneyland and the movies that have either come from or were inspired to make movies. For the sake of this episode, I'm looking into films that used the park as a set, as well as films inspired by attractions Walt commissioned. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. To all who come to this happy place, welcome. Disneyland is your land. Here age relives fond memories of the past, and here youth may savor the challenge and promise of the future. Disneyland is dedicated to the ideals, the dreams, and the hard facts that have created America, with the hope that it will be a source of joy and inspiration to all the world. It was a good time to be involved with Walt Disney in the late 1940s. Mickey Mouse and the other animated projects had become beloved the world over despite spotty box office returns. Their films steeped in family values and optimism, overall were exactly what a world recovering from war needed. Walt, a consummate family man, would frequently take his daughters to Griffith Park in Los Angeles for family excursions. On one of these trips, while watching his daughters on the merry-go-round, he got the idea to create a park where people of all ages could enjoy a fun-filled day. This was the spark that would turn into Disneyland. The earliest record for what Disneyland would become was a set of plans Walt sent as a memo to Dick Kelsey on August 31st, 1948. At the time, he referred to it as Mickey Mouse Park. In this memo, Walt described his original image of the park. The entryway would be an idyllic town, which, among many other things, would include a park, bandstand, railroad station, fire station, theater, town hall, and of course stores that would sell Disney merchandise. Different sections proposed for the park included a carnival section and Western Village in which Walt wanted to include a museum of the Old West. Also in 1948, Walt and animator Ward Kimball 
set off to Henry Ford's Museum and Greenfield Village, which featured a main street similar to the one Walt wished to build in his Mickey Mouse Park. This was the first of many theme parks all over the country that Walt and his Imagineers would visit for inspiration. This idea also came from the public. For years, people, mostly young children, have been writing Waltz wishing to visit the Disney studio to see where the literal magic happened. If you've ever been on a back lot, while the environment is pretty exciting at first, it's not the most visually arresting place to be. Disney Studio in particular is a lot of big sound stages and administration buildings. No castles, no Mickey Mouse running around, nothing so magical as what the children were probably imagining. Trailers for talent are peppered in for good measure. Not to ruin the mystique, though that's pretty much what I've been doing since I started this podcast, but the image you've probably seen in a film or television show featuring all different kinds of people dressed in all manner of period clothing, wandering the alley between the big sound stages was invented for film and the only time that does actually happen is when they're shooting that scene for a movie. Super meta stuff, guys. Walt, of course, knew the lackluster image of an actual functioning movie studio through the eyes of a child and thought that perhaps making a theme park near the Burbank studio would accommodate these wishes whilst preserving the magic. As Walt was one to do, the size of Mickey Mouse Park quickly outgrew what the land he had in Burbank could hold and hired Harrison Price, a research analyst, to find a plot of land in Southern California that could get the job done. Price came back with his findings and Walt purchased a 160-acre lot of orange groves and walnut trees in Anaheim, California. The land that Walt had originally earmarked for the park now holds Walt Disney Animation Studios and ABC Studios. When fundraising proved difficult, Walt came up with the idea to produce a weekly television show called Disneyland, which would eventually air on the, at the time, struggling ABC network. In return for Walt's weekly television show, ABC would sponsor the park to the tune of $5 million. In addition, Disney rented out many of the shops on Main Street USA, your first glimpse of Disneyland once entering the park, to outside companies to conduct business though this would come to an end within the first five years of Disneyland's opening. How do you do, everyone? This is Hank Weaver. For the past year, this signature has announced the opening of Disneyland the show. Now it announces the opening of Disneyland the place. The people and eyes around the world are focused on these 160 acres here in Anaheim, California. This afternoon, Disneyland, the world's most fabulous kingdom, will be unveiled before an invitational world premiere, and you are guests. Art Linklater will be your host, and with ABC crews and cameras on the spot, will guide you through this truly magic land. About $17 million, thousands of workers, and a year and a day after construction began, Disneyland opened on July 17, 1955, for what was supposed to be an invite-only event. About 14,000 people had been invited, but 28,000 showed up. Of the uninvited guests, some had bought counterfeit tickets, and some just hopped the fence to gain access to the park. The following day, Disneyland opened to the public with 20 attractions. The original park consisted of a town square, Main Street, Adventureland, Fantasyland, Frontierland, and Tomorrowland. Traffic was backed up on Harbor Road for hours and hours. 
What was the admission to Disneyland on the opening day of the park, you ask? $1. It's $129 now. The dedication ceremony included California governor at the time, Goodwin Knight, as well as some of Walt's Hollywood friends like Ronald Reagan, Art Linkletter, and Robert Cummings, and was televised on ABC as part of Walt's deal with the network. The broadcast attracted over 90 million viewers, the largest television audience in history at the time. The world had its eyes on Disneyland for what executives for the studio would come to call Black Sunday and would lead to the press calling Disneyland Walt's Folly. This was because the first day went off with dozens of hitches. It was 100 degrees Fahrenheit, the hottest day of the summer. Double the people that were supposed to enter the park were present. Women's heels were sinking into the recently poured asphalt. Not to mention a plumbing strike was underway at the time, leading Walt to have to choose between functioning toilets or functioning drinking fountains. He went with the toilets. Three out of the five lands were closed within hours of opening due to a gas leak. Despite all of this, Disneyland became a popular tourist destination, seeing five million guests in its first year alone. Fantasyland was Walt's answer to children's, and sure the adults too, wishes to be able to experience the Disney films they had come to love. At the opening of the park, guests could experience a ride through of Snow White, an attraction that still exists in the park today, but has been tweaked slightly as early reviews of the ride were less than stellar. Experiences park goers could also have at the opening of the park included flying over the rooftops of London and Neverland like Peter Pan, a ride to the Underworld and Mr. Toad's Wild Ride, and a spin in the Mad Hatter's teacups. A ride based on Alice in Wonderland opened about three years later. Mickey Mouse and company were also integrated in the park in the form of costume characters. I don't want to rag on the designers at the time, but let's just say that the costume characters, especially the ones with the big heads, look quite a bit different these days than back in 1955. Walt was alive for 11 years after he opened his park. He treated it as a big toy and loved to use it for television specials and entertaining guests and foreign dignitaries. Welcome, Mrs. P.L. Travers, to the City of Angels. It smells like... Jasmine. Chlorine and sweat. <laughs> Introducing the creator of our beloved Mary. Poppins. Never, ever just Mary. Now, where is Mr. Disney? Well, Pamela Travers, you can't imagine how excited I am to finally meet you. Would you mind? My name is Mrs. Travers, Mr. Disney. Oh, Walt, now you gotta call me Walt. 20 years ago, I made a promise to my daughters that I would make your Mary Poppins fly off the pages of your books. I promised them, Pam. I know what he's going to do to her. She'll be cavorting and twinkling. She can't make the film unless you grant the rights. Pam. What kind of ideas? Constables responsible. Now, how no, 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 does that no. sound? No, 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 no. Responsible is not a word. We made it up. Well, unmake it up. The first major film to shoot at Disneyland wasn't actually a Disney film, but rather a Universal Studios picture in 1962, then known as Universal International. The film was called 40 Pounds of Trouble, which starred Tony Curtis as a casino manager taking care of a child whose father had recently died. 
Only in the 60s would that be a plot of a movie. The child wants to go to Disneyland, and for about 20 minutes of the film, that's exactly what they do. The film offers an interesting time capsule into what Disneyland once was, particularly when it comes to the aforementioned costume characters. You'll see what I mean if you look at the corresponding images I post on social media. As Disney is one to do, a more rose-colored glasses view of the park, especially when it came to those costume characters, I really can't get over it. From the same era, comes from Disney itself. Originally in development as an independent film, Saving Mr. Banks was in development nearly a decade before Disney got its hands on it. The story is that of P.L. Travers and her relationship with Walt Disney as he attempts to persuade her to sell him the film rights to her books, Mary Poppins, Walt's daughter's favorite books from childhood. Two screenwriters, Sue Smith and Kelly Marcel, had been hired by an Australian producer to write a biopic on P.L. Travers, the author of Mary Poppins. Walt Disney became a pretty big part of the film, leading the filmmakers to realize that they would eventually have to seek out permission from the Walt Disney Company in order to be able to use any of the intellectual property revolving around the two's relationship. Eventually, the finished script made its way onto Franklin Leonard's The Blacklist, a list of screenplays voted on by producers to determine the best unmade scripts in town. This caught the attention of Disney's head of production of the time, Sean Bailey, whom informed CEO at the time Bob Iger and chairman Alan Horn. The three bounced around several ideas of what to do about the script, including buying the script and shutting down the project, before opting to join the film as co-producers. Disney's involvement in the film allowed access to things like audio recordings of Travers and the Sherman Brothers, the latter of whom wrote the songs for the film, that had been previously unavailable to the production team. They also received access to the correspondence between Walt and Travers that dated back to the 1940s. 2013's Saving Mr. Banks gives a pretty Walt-positive view of the relationship between Travers and himself. According to the filmmakers, however, this was widely the version of him that existed in the original screenplay. The biggest thing Disney made the filmmakers cut out was any depiction of Walt actually smoking. During one scene in the film, Walt takes Travers to his theme park. This was achieved by the filmmakers using cast members, what they call Disneyland employees, as extras and attempting to hide as much as possible of the more recent additions to the park. What they do show was painstakingly recreated by the production designer, Michael Korenblith, who worked with Imagineers, cast members, and the Walt Disney Imagineering Art Library to recreate as much as they possibly could, as accurately as they possibly could. This included posters that would have been present in front of the floral Mickey in 1961 at the entrance of the park that are no longer hanging there today. The shop windows on Main Street were painstakingly recreated to match what they would have looked like back then using as many historically accurate props as they could procure. While not perfect, I mean who could expect it to be, as the park has changed quite drastically in the last 50 years, but nevertheless the film does do an excellent job at not only recreating Disneyland, but the Disney Studios in Burbank backlot and Walt's offices as well. One thing they did alter, and I promise this is the last time I'll mention it, is what the costume characters looked like in the 60s versus what they look like in the film. It's an interesting contrast, to be sure. 
In recent years, as nostalgia has become more and more popular, the park's rides have inspired films for the studio with varying degrees of success. The following are the ones that were inspired by Walt-commissioned attractions. The first major film adaptation was The Pirates of the Caribbean, the last attraction Walt actively helped design, though it debuted three months after his passing. A dark ride, parkgoers are ushered into boats and sent through a series of animatronic scenes featuring pirates in varying stages of chaos. The ride remains to this day a staple for the park. In 2001, Walt Disney Pictures commissioned a script for a film based on the ride. Initially, the film had been planned as a direct-to-video release, but this changed when producer Jerry Bruckheimer was brought on board. The script was revamped to the version that eventually became 2003's Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. Michael Eisner attempted to cancel the film after the travesty that had befallen the Country Bears in 2002. Based on the Country Bear Jamboree in a more recent land known as Critter Country, the attraction at the park was installed in 1972, and the film is essentially more or less a Blues Brothers knockoff in terms of plot. The film was a huge flop commercially and critically, not even making back half of the cost it took to make the film. Needless to say, this spooked Eisner on the prospect of a Pirates of the Caribbean project. The director of Pirates, Gore Verbinski, managed to convince Eisner to keep the film in production after showing him concept art his team had been working on. Eisner still balked at the cost of the film, $140 million, which, according to the book Disney Wars, Bruckheimer convinced him to spend after citing the costs of other studios' franchise films, most notably The Matrix and The Lord of the Rings. Luckily for Eisner, though not enough to save his job a couple of years later, the film was a financial and critical hit, spawning four very mediocre sequels, though those technically can't be blamed on him. The Pirates of the Caribbean films then turned around and inspired the ride. Before the first sequel, Pirates of the Caribbean Dead Man's Chest, in 2006 was released, the ride was updated to include some of the more popular characters from the film, most notably Jack Sparrow, during several parts of the ride. Captain Barbosa took the place of an originally unnamed pirate in one of the first scenes after the pirates come to life. Serving as the entry point was a wall of fog, with the film's villain, Davy Jones, warning ridegoers of the impending doom they face. This was removed in 2018, and the original narration from 1967 was reinstated. The ride has also been used to provide online content to promote the films, including one time when Johnny Depp stood in for one of his animatronic doppelgangers. Captain Jack has become one of Disney's most iconic characters, and certainly one of Johnny Depp's. What you saw was a place where the best and the brightest people of the world came together to actually change it. We've been looking for someone like you for a very long time. Why? Did something happen over there? Something bad? They followed you here? Who? Come on! Get in! How is this a good idea? There's one way in. 
people. Why me? He thinks you can fix the future. An entire section of the park inspired the 2015 film Tomorrowland. The film follows an inventor named Frank, whom discovers a secret world, Tomorrowland, the entrance of which is within the It's a Small World ride currently installed at the 1964 World's Fair. Later in life, the now disillusioned Frank meets a teenage science enthusiast, and the two embark to the world of Tomorrowland, where their actions in this alternate world have direct effects on their own. The Land of Tomorrow depicted in the film is visually stunning, featuring many nods to Walt Disney and the Disney parks throughout it, most notably the opening sequence, which takes place at the 1964 New York World's Fair, where Disney debuted It's a Small World, as well as the Carousel of Progress, Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, and Ford's Magic Skyway, a predecessor to the People Mover. This film was partially shot at Disneyland as well as the It's a Small World ride, both inside and out, was used. The film was developed by Damon Lindelof, whom approached Disney to make a sci-fi film based on the Disneyland land, a genre that Disney didn't have the greatest track record with at the time. See, The Black Hole, The Rocketeer, either of the Tron films, really. But Disney greenlit the project anyway. Lindelof hired someone to research Walt Disney's history, his fascination with futurism, his wish to create a utopian-type community, which was the original concept for Epcot, and his contribution to the World's Fair. Lindelof and Brad Bird, the director, also wanted to implement and address the loss of optimism for the future that had once defined the 50s to early 70s in the hopes of creating a film that could reinvigorate the audience's view of what the future could hold. While the premise of the film is intriguing, and there certainly wasn't a lack of moxie on the filmmaking side, the final film was tepidly received by critics at best. Many critiqued the lack of Tomorrowland that was actually seen in Tomorrowland. Audiences didn't respond to the film well either, leading to an about $130 million loss on the film during its theatrical run. About five months after its release, director Brad Bird said on the critiques of the film, quote, People will argue about whether we told the proper story or not. People ask, why did you spend so much time in a car when you could have been in Tomorrowland? But the movie was always intended to be a road movie, and its title seemed to suggest to some people that the whole movie was going to take place in Tomorrowland. We had a lot of ideas for Tomorrowland, but just running around Tomorrowland is not a movie. There has to be conflict. It has to be somewhat interesting. We set out to make a fable or a fairy tale about what happened to the positive view of the future and how can we get it back and pursue that idea. For better or worse, we did. The next film, based on Walt's Disneyland, will be The Jungle Cruise, starring Dwayne Johnson and Emily Blunt. The movie was supposed to be released this past summer, but due to movie theaters being closed as a result of the coronavirus, it has been pushed to summer 2021. The Jungle Cruise The Ride was an opening day attraction at Disneyland. The ride has more or less remained in its original opening day form since 1955, with a couple of minor tweaks here and there. Originally, 
The ride was more of a nature documentary before intentionally bad puns were added to the script in 1962. The premise of the ride is a river tour through a British colony circa 1938. On said tour, the travelers experience many exotic animals and indigenous peoples throughout several parts of the world, including India, Africa, and Brazil. The film adaptation of the ride has been in development since 2004 and was originally announced in February 2011 as a vehicle for Tom Hanks and Tim Allen, aka Woody and Buzz Lightyear. Four years later, in 2015, the film was redeveloped for Dwayne Johnson. The film will also feature the second openly gay character in a Disney film after LeFou in the 2017 live-action Beauty and the Beast. While the California Disneyland is closed for the foreseeable future because pandemic, the good news is we don't have to go completely without the theme park. In addition to the films mentioned in today's episode, there are several others inspired by later attractions, including the Haunted Mansion and Tower of Terror. While it may be a while before anyone graces the original Magic Kingdom again, for now we'll just have to enjoy it from within our own homes. So, pop some popcorn, turn down the lights, and get reacquainted with one of your favorite Disney movies. Disney films are made to make you feel good and optimistic for a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. There's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow And tomorrow's just a dream away that's another one in the books. As always, if there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, at Tinsel underscore Factory on Twitter, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at TinselFactoryPod at gmail.com. I do as much research as I can in the week it takes me to write and produce each episode, so if I got anything wrong, please email me and I will correct it on a future episode. All of my sources, as well as some recommended viewing, are in the show notes of this episode. I'm also relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out for the time being, so if you could rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. It takes two seconds and it's totally free. In order to keep making this podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. This will allow me to keep making episodes as well as being able to acquire some better equipment down the line. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. And finally, as a reminder, I'm taking next week off for Thanksgiving, but I'll be back December 6th with an episode on the history of Hollywood in a pandemic. Definitely one you don't want to miss. Have a wonderful, safe holiday, and please take care of yourselves. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, that's a wrap.